All right, so turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 if you're not already there. Let me just read verses 1, I'm sorry, verse 18 through 22, and then we'll come back uh, and we'll wrap it up this morning as we look at the second half of verse 20, and then verses uh, 21 and 22. It says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So as we finish this section this morning, just a very brief review. Uh, We saw earlier in verse 18 uh, that Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind, Uh, that Peter brings out that truth that he physically died on the cross, Uh, that he lived, he suffered, he died, and in his death, Uh, It was a once-for-all death. There was no need for any other sacrifice. Uh, We were at a a Catholic service uh, earlier this week, and uh, they were practicing the Eucharist. And if you know anything about the uh, the Catholic faith, uh, we were sitting there, and I was explaining to Joshua. I said, you know, in their faith, there is some belief that what they do is they re-sacrifice Christ, that there is this constant sacrifice that is offered over and over and over again. And, and he kind of turned to me and said, well, what happened to it is finished? What happened to, you know, it's a one-time salvation? I said, well, they clearly don't believe that. Uh, no matter what they say, it's that there, there, there has to be a sacrifice over and over and over again. Peter makes that clear. That is not the case. Christ died once for all. He was the just. We are the unjust. And the result of that is that he brings us to God. He makes that reconciliation. He makes that peace between a fallen man and their creator. Uh, Then he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We talked about what that is, whether you see a connection to resurrection or that is a a, what is called a quickening. Uh, You have his body on the cross, but his spirit is alive and goes to make a proclamation to spirits in prison. And those spirits in prison, uh, we identified them as fallen angels, that these would have been uh, the sons of God of Genesis chapter 6, uh, most likely when we read Second Peter and we read Jude, uh, that these are disobedient angels, demons who cross the line, and uh, unlike other demons who still roam to a certain degree freely on the earth, these demons are locked up in an abyss, in a, a, a pit, uh, in a prison, and they are awaiting final judgment. Uh, and so Christ goes there and he makes this victory proclamation uh, that it is finished, that he accomplished salvation, that they were not able to stop that plan of God. Uh, and that brings us to the middle of verse 20, which is what we're going to look at today. So as we look at, at the salvation through Jesus' suffering, we're going to break it down this way. First of all, we'll see the patience in salvation, okay? the patience in salvation. Then we'll see the narrowness of salvation, okay? the narrowness there. Then we'll see the antitype of salvation. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. And then if you go on to the back page, we'll see the cleansing through salvation and then the exaltation after salvation. So all of this is tied into the suffering of Christ and the salvation that he accomplished or that he uh, gives to those who come through him. 
So let's begin uh, back on page four and look at the patience in salvation. So as we continue here in verse 20, we've already established that Peter has identified uh, the, the time period of this demonic rebellion. This happened during the days of Noah. Again, if you look at Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7, uh, we see this record of the rebellion of the sons of God who were uh, cohabiting with the daughters of men, and they had offspring with them. And, and so most likely what they were trying to do was to pollute, to corrupt uh, the human race, and uh, perhaps to be an influence on those children, those offspring, uh, to live in an ungodly fashion. We can't be 100% uh, sure about that, but that's what it seems was happening uh, when you look at all of the uh, possibilities there and the evidence in Scripture for that. And now during this time when we're talking about the patience of God, look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 32. Genesis chapter 5 gives us genealogy of Adam and Eve all the way up to Noah. And when we finish chapter 5, looking at verse 32, we are given the age of Noah. Right? Noah was 500 years old and became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and so as we look at the end of chapter 5 and what we would say is the beginning of chapter 6, Noah is in that, uh, that age period of about 500 years old. Right? And, and so we see there uh, giving uh, that marker to us of where he is uh, on that, that uh, timeline there. Now if you look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, we see here that Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. So from the time of Genesis 5.32 to the time of Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, there's about 100 years that has gone by. And, and so this, this activity of the sons of God with the daughters of men, uh, God seeing that the, the thoughts of man on earth are continually wicked, his decision to bring the flood upon the earth, his proclamation to Noah to build the ark, and then when the actual floodwaters start to rise on the earth, you're looking at 100 years or so uh, from, the, again, the end of chapter 5, verse 32, to chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, and so if you're looking at this, this patient time period here, we could say that God has waited at least a century before he brings judgment upon the earth. And that's why Peter, if you go back to 1 Peter, uh, he talks about God patiently waiting. God is patiently holding back judgment. He is showing man mercy and grace and patience. He is long-suffering. He is enduring. In fact, uh, if, if you look at that word patience, it's macrothumia, and that describes the endurance or the long-suffering of God, that he is tolerating man. He's putting up with man. I've had conversations with um, various uh, uh, believers and unbelievers and family members uh, as to why God hasn't dealt with sin yet. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit, but the, the, the short answer is this, is that if you want God to deal with sin right now and, and, and just a, a final uh, dealing with sin, all of it is judged and, and all sinners are destroyed, then everyone on the face of the earth is gone like that, including you. And so the, the short answer is, is God is giving more people more time to be saved. That is a gracious and patient act of God. We see that happening here in Genesis chapter uh, 6 and Genesis chapter 7. And Peter is talking about that back in 1 Peter chapter 3. That God has been very patient. He has been waiting for um, this, this, this um, judgment uh, that is coming. He's been holding it back. 
You know, he's holding back the floodwaters to give man an opportunity to be saved. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's interesting as we look at, at the way that sin was just rampant on the earth, uh, oftentimes we will use a term like, like flood. We will say that it's flooding the earth, just saying that it's going out, it's permeating, it's saturating. And, and it's clear that sin had flooded the earth, and in just a short amount of time, a hundred years or so, you know, that's, that's longer during the, the period of time when you're looking at it from our perspective. But, but for God, a hundred years is nothing. So by man's standards, a long, long time has gone by. But for God, it could be what we just call seconds or minutes. We don't know how to gauge time in God's presence because he created time itself as we know it. But here on earth, there's about a hundred years that has gone by. And God is giving man time to repent and to be saved. And he sends Noah. Noah is proclaiming that judgment is coming. When you look back at Genesis chapter 6, look at verse 3. There is one question here, and I'm not going to get into the pros and cons, but I'll give you the two main views. Uh, As I've mentioned before, the past uh, couple of studies, this section of 1 Peter uh, is is very uh, problematic in the sense that there's a lot of different views for the statements Peter makes. And, And looking at God's patience is no different. How long was that patience? We can't be sure, but somewhere around 100 years. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God says, Then uh, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Okay? So some people look at that and say, Okay, well, well, Noah was in the 500-year range, and he was in the 600-year range when the flood came, so 120 years can fit in there. So, so one view is that it was about 120 years from the proclamation of judgment to the actual floodwaters coming. Others see this as actually a statement of shortening the lifespan of man. That prior to the flood, people lived to be hundreds and hundreds of years old. But after the flood, you don't really see that. You see people maybe up in the 120s, 140s, but that's about it. And nowadays, you, I mean, if somebody reaches 100 years old, I mean, we're, we're putting them in the newspaper and we're having a, a bit of, you know, a little news snippet on them that, wow, another person reached 100 years old because people don't live to be that, that old anymore. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 5 and you look at these, these years, take a look at, at just, I'm just going to show you a few here so you can see the contrast there. Genesis chapter 5, verse uh, 5 So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Uh, You look at verse 7, Seth lived 807 years. You look at verse um, uh, 11, the days of Enosh were 905 years. Uh, You take a look at verse 20, the days of Jared were 962 years. Uh, You look at Methuselah, uh, the days of Methuselah were 969 years. That's verse 27. Uh, Then you look at Noah, 500 years, and he's still going. He's going to reach at least 600. We know that. And so here you see that the lifespan was centuries. And so many people going back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, say, okay, it's either the time of proclamation of judgment to when the floodwaters rose and wiped everyone out, or it could be a statement that God is not going to allow man to live that long anymore. Uh, We cannot be sure, but I do think that, that perhaps there's a little more evidence um, in the context for the flood judgment, when you look at Noah being 500 and then 600 when the flood waters rose, I think there's maybe, if you could just kind of tip it in the, that direction, tip the scales that way. But it is true. People do not live to be hundreds and hundreds of years anymore. So there, is, there are good points for both views. Anyhow, 
That's just a, a little bit of an extra there for you. But uh, no, nonetheless, when, when the flood waters started to come upon the earth, Noah was 600 years old. And so we do see that, and God was very gracious in giving that time. Now, during this time, Noah was preaching. Uh, we don't know the exact message. There isn't a recorded sermon of Noah. But if you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. We'll start in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, or a herald of righteousness. So what was the message? What was the righteous message that Noah proclaimed? What was the righteous message that he preached? It's not recorded for us. We don't know exactly what he said. I mean, we, we can look at the book of Acts and we can see Peter's sermons. We can see Stephen's sermon. We can see Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17, but we don't have a record of the, the proclamation of righteousness by Noah. But just because we don't have that record doesn't mean he didn't preach. 2 Peter 3, 5, or 2, 5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that during his time he was proclaiming the righteousness of God. And we can assume that if he proclaimed the righteousness of God, he proclaimed the unrighteousness of man. There's that contrast. So whatever it was, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so during that time of, of uh, God holding back the flood judgment, he was providing a preacher to tell them to repent, judgment is coming, and he was providing a vessel of salvation in the ark. Noah was building that ark, and that was uh, designed to bring people safely through the floodwaters of judgment. And so God gave man plenty of time to repent. He gave them the message, he gave them the means, he gave them the messenger, but the question is, is did the people listen? And as we go on in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, the answer is very clear. There is clearly a narrowness of salvation. And so when we look at this, no, the people did not listen. Go back to verse um, 20 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Okay. We see here that Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So we don't know the, the total population on the earth during the time of Noah. But what we do know is that both in Genesis and in 1 Peter, we are told that only eight people were saved. That is Noah, his wife, their sons, and their daughters. And that's it. Nobody else got into the ark. And so that is a very sobering statement if you think about it. If you think about everybody who was alive at that time and, and the only people who were saved were those eight people. I mean, that would be a terrifying thing to see. And when that door was closed, God shut that door and it was not going to reopen. Uh, we've talked about that on Wednesday evenings. We've talked about that during uh, our messages in the Gospel of Luke that when that door is closed, nobody gets inside. The door is narrow, and when it's shut, the opportunity is gone. And that's what happened here in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7. God proclaimed judgment was coming. When the floodwaters were, were starting to pour out uh, upon the earth, the door is sealed up, and nobody else gets in. And Peter says, only a few 
eight people came through that flood. Uh, and so when we, when we think about that, that, that really is consistent with what we see throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Uh, take a look at Luke chapter 13, verse 23. Luke chapter 13 and verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And then he goes on and talks about the narrowness of salvation. So we look at passages like that and we think of this narrow door, the narrow gate. Many are called and few are chosen, uh, chosen. the path you know, destruction is broad, it's wide, and many take that path. There is no doubt that in Scripture, God makes it very, very clear. There are fewer people who are saved than those who are condemned. That doesn't mean it's just going to be a very small number of people who are there in, in glory with God. I think when you're looking at, at human history, there's going to be a great multitude of people who are saved, but not in comparison with all those who perish in comparison with those who ultimately end up in the lake of fire. Uh, and, and so as we look at that, we understand that the Bible is consistent, uh, that there are few who find salvation. You know, and when you, when you think about Noah and his, his family, this doesn't mean, this isn't a statement that Noah was somehow this perfect man that God had to save. Uh, in, in fact, go back to Genesis chapter 6, and look, I believe it is uh, verse 8. we see this um, very troubling statement about uh, the Lord, verse 5, seeing that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, the, the, every intent of his heart, uh, of his thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so when we look at that, we read favor. I don't know if any of your translations say that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But when you're looking at the Hebrew word there, which is chen, there's that guttural sound, so it's like chen. That is actually better translated grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was no better than anyone else who perished in that flood. It was by the grace of God that Noah received the message of God. It was by the grace of God that he believed it and that he acted upon it and that he was safely brought into the ark and through the floodwaters with his family. And so there we see this wonderful, gracious act of God when at the same time we see the, the judgment of God poured out on the face of the earth. And so there you see both his grace and his judgment at the same time. And so there's no inconsistency with God. There's no contradictions in God. He is always merciful and gracious and just, and he is always angry and, and vengeful and, and bringing judgment. He is all that he is and all of his attributes at the same time equally. And so we like to compartmentalize God, or we like to say, well, he, he can't be this because he's this. Well, no. He can be angry, but he can also be loving. He can be a God of vengeance, but he can be a God of great mercy at the same time because that's how he exists in his attributes, in that perfection and, and that totality, the, the holiness of who he is. And so we see both with Noah. 
Uh, we see the grace and the mercy of God, but we also see the judgment and the anger of God upon sinful man. And so in that, that narrowness of salvation, and, and this might be going through the minds of, of those that Peter was writing to, that uh, they're a small group of devoted followers of Christ compared to all those around them. Remember, they are scattered over a large area. Uh, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 as Peter is greeting his brethren. And we see here chapter 1 verse 1. He is uh, greeting those who reside as aliens. We've already discussed that, that they are not citizens of this world primarily. Their, their primary place of residence is heaven. So here they are, but this also is probably a reference to the fact that they're not in their regular homeland. They've been scattered. They're throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And it says you're all over the place. You're scattered, you're aliens, you're on the run, you're the diaspora, you're out there, and you're few compared to those around you. And so as they're reading Peter's letter and they're seeing that God was gracious to a few, they can say, well, we are the few. As Noah and his family were spared from judgment, so are we. And we see the world around us perishing. We see the world around us, and the thoughts of their hearts are continually evil, but God has been gracious to the few of us who believe. You know? And so as we, you know, we look around at, at um, our world today, we can see that. That, that the world around us, especially in the United States, because we have been so sheltered and, and protected from so much of what we see throughout history in other countries, uh, because we've had those you know, roots of the you know, biblical and Judeo-Christian morals and ethics and principles. But we look at all of that now, and, and the country doesn't want that. And we're starting to see this, this, this uh, demise of, of what the country used to be, and it's happening quickly. And, and we see that, and we're shocked by it. But the reality is, is that's always the way it's been. The people of God have always been the few. And the rest of the world is perishing. So you see there the narrowness of salvation. Look here as we go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at the type and the anti-type of salvation. And, and Peter gives us this comparison here. So we see here that a few are brought through the water safely. And then in verse 21, he says, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, Peter's making a connection between the ark of salvation and the baptism that we have in Jesus Christ. He's saying there's a connection here, guys. When you think of the floodwaters and you think of, of Noah and his family being protected in this vessel of salvation, that was, in a sense, a type of what was to come. And we see that anti-type or the fulfillment, the greater uh, of the two in Jesus Christ and specifically in our baptism in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at that, you know, th there are, and let me, let me just say this, uh, take a look here at this little uh, quote box from Hebert over on the right. It says, the only other New Testament occurrence of the word antitupos, which is where we get anti-type from or the, the corresponding, uh, is in Hebrews 9.24, where it refers to the Mosaic sanctuary as a copy of the true heavenly sanctuary. So this is Christ presenting himself to God as this offering. And so when we think of the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, the ark, the holy of holies, all of that was a, a copy of what is in the presence of God in heaven. So the earthly copy. So, so Hebert says, this is the only other time where you find this reference. 
Uh, it, then it says references to Old Testament people or events as types or prefigurations of Christian realities occur elsewhere in the New Testament, and we see that uh, very clearly with Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter or he, in, in the book of Hebrews, where Melchizedek is this mysterious king and priest that you find in Genesis, and then there's the connection that Christ is of the priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and so that is something we can't talk about now, but understand this. When you look at the Old and New Testament, it's not like you see all these types and shadows everywhere throughout Scripture. And I say that because there are many people who like to look at Old Testament and say, oh, well, this is Christ, and that's Christ. And, you know, whether it's, it's um, the Song of Solomon and that, you know, this is, you know, Christ and the church, or, or you take a look at David and Goliath, and, you know, uh, the, the, the Goliath is a type of the, the giants of, of trouble that we face and adversity here in the world, and, and the stones were virtuous things. You know, and you look at this like, well, let's be careful to make sure that we don't apply, you know, and identify things as types or anti-types unless we can see that Scripture does that. That's where you're safe. Here, Peter makes, there, there's no doubt about this. Peter says, when you think about Noah and you think about the flood, baptism is like that. Baptism saves you. But he's very clear, and we would say Peter is making it very clear that he's not preaching baptismal regeneration. Peter is not saying that when you are sprinkled or the water is poured on you or you're immersed in water, that that cleanses your soul. He says that's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not those ceremonial washings that the Jews were used to. It's not entering into the Jordan or our baptismal tank or, or whatever it is. Uh, and, and so Peter is saying it's, it's not the, the, the act of washing that saves you. He says instead, it's, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. And so he says even though there's a connection here, there's a comparison, there is this type and baptism is that reality of what we see with, with the judgment of the flood and people being saved through it. it says, your, your, the correspondence there is really the clear conscience that you have, the new conscience, the conscience that was once dead and seared and, and alienated from God. And, and you, you think of Adam and Eve, right? When you look at, at the, the fellowship Adam and Eve had with God, uh, not given great detail, but he was there with them and he would come and dwell among them and speak to them and, and give them messages. And we don't know how long that happened, but we know that the moment that they ate of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their consciences were no longer good. They could no longer stand before the presence of God and look, look him, we would say, eye to eye and be comfortable with him anymore. They were immediately just riddled with guilt and shame. And they hid themselves. They, they tried to make clothing for themselves to hide their sin, to hide their nakedness, because their relationship had been destroyed. And ever since the point of the fall of man, every person born into this world has both the imputed and the inherited sin nature of our parents, Adam and Eve. And we all have these polluted consciences. We have these, these dead souls, if you will, before God, spiritually dead. And, and Peter says that the, the way that the ark brought people safely through these floodwaters, that in Jesus Christ, God's, in a sense, flood of judgment that is coming, Jesus is that safe vessel. He brings you through. 
and you can stand before God with a clear conscience. And, and perhaps what Peter is saying here is, is that when you, are, when you are going through the act of baptism, that you are making this proclamation that your conscience is good before God. Now, we do need to appeal to God for that good conscience, meaning we call upon Christ to be saved. We confess our sins. We, we admit our need for the Savior and understand who He is. But at the same time, when you're talking about going through baptism, part of baptism was to give a public testimony, to let people know uh, in a physical way what has happened internally. Say, this is the spiritual transformation that has happened. And these waters that I'm coming out of or, or going down into and coming up out of, this is symbolic of the cleansing of my soul. And with that, my proclamation of the good conscience is, Lord, I'm cleansed. I'm now your disciple. I'm now your child. So I stand before you saying, I commit to you. And so when we're talking about there, Peter's saying, this is really what we see, the cleansing that takes place. Take a look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Let's start in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Okay. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So here we see Paul saying the same thing that Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 3, but maybe a little more detail. Paul is saying that, that when we are baptized into Christ, when we are immersed into Christ, that's what, what baptism means, baptizo. It's to immerse or to dip. And that's why we practice the full immersion baptism, not a sprinkling or a pouring. Now, we've done that in situations where maybe for health issues, physical issues, people can't be immersed. But what you look here in Scripture and see is you see the practice of an immersion, and that's symbolic of being fully immersed in Christ. And, and so that's what Paul is saying here, that we've been baptized into Christ, and when we do, it's like our old self is gone. It's, it's dead. The old man is dead. The new man has come. In fact, take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. So keep you know, Romans chapter 6 in mind. Keep 1 Peter chapter 3 in mind. And look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so throughout Scripture, we see this understanding that, that we, we, the old man, the old person dies, and then we are resurrected, in a sense, to newness of life. And that's why Peter ties resurrection in there as well, that we appeal to God for a good conscience or with a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
that when we understand the, the power of God, the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit, that he, he brings himself back from the dead and, and defeats Satan and sin and death, that we too have that newness of life. That spiritually we have that at the moment of our faith in Christ and physically we will rise from the grave. That we're not going to be left in the grave. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you look here, again, this is the whole chapter, all 58 verses, is this great um, proclamation and presentation of the importance of the resurrection of Christ. But look at verse 50. Let's just read through these last nine verses. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this imperishable must put on, or this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so here as we look at the mystery of resurrection and the blessing and the promise of it, going back to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, baptism saves you. You are brought safely through those waters. And as you're going into the waters of baptism, remember the ark. Remember Noah and his family. That God provided a means of salvation to bring them safely through the waters of judgment. And when we are baptized, we can look at that and say this is the antitype. This is the greater salvation. Noah's was physical. Ours is spiritual. They were brought literally through the water. We are baptized and immersed into Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our glorious hope and of our good conscience. And so Peter is presenting there the, the type and the antitype that we see here both in Noah's day and in our baptism in Christ. Take a look at uh, the back page here as we start to wrap things up. Let's look at the cleansing through salvation. Uh, I talked about this a little bit, but just a little more information on this. It says, continuing on, Peter presents a strong contrast between the literal washing of dirt from the flesh and the spiritual cleansing and baptism. Again, that appeal to God for a good conscience. Um, so let's look at a few verses that demonstrate the fact that the Bible teaches that we are born in this corrupt state. Okay, take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Okay. So as we look there in verses 1 through 3, Peter makes it very, I'm sorry, Paul makes it very clear. Prior to our salvation in Christ, this is who we were. We were wicked, dead sinners. We were slaves of Satan. We were children of wrath on our way to condemnation. 
This is who we are without Christ. Look at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Romans chapter 3, beginning in, we'll start in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, meaning Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. Every person uh, of the human race is guilty before God. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, this is a very sad but true commentary of the human race without Christ. And so as we look at this, we cannot have that clear conscience before God. And so we come to God in this, this first of all, this, this humble um, pleading to save us. And he will when we come through Christ. And then there's this appeal to God, this pledge or this agreement that that's who I used to be. Okay, go back to Ephesians 4 as we wrap, wrap up this section. I'm sorry, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. Okay. So verses 1 through 3 are who we were without Christ. Verses 4 through 10 are who we are in Christ. And we see this contrast here, this great contrast with one little conjunction. Okay. When you look at verse, uh, again, 3, we were children of wrath even as the rest. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his love, his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up in him. There again is that resurrection uh, picture. We have been raised up with Christ. In the end, uh, raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So here, this is who we are in Christ and after being in Christ. And again, as we've already kind of fleshed this out, we see so many truths that Peter has already stated. Uh, we see the great love of God. We've seen that in Peter already. We see that we have been made alive through his resurrection. That's that good, uh, the appeal of the good conscience based on the resurrection of Christ. Uh, we're going to see something new here as we wrap up 1 Peter chapter 3. But uh, Paul mentions this, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And when does that happen? It's in the future. So that in the ages to come, he shows the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So go back now to 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's look at our last section here of our study this morning. And that's the exaltation after salvation. So recall, remember, uh, Jesus, after he has been crucified and he's buried and he rises, 
Uh, Forty days later, we see that he is uh, ascending to heaven. You read about that in Acts chapter 1. We understand, though, that, that Christ, during his earthly ministry, he was known as the suffering servant. If you recall Isaiah 53, it spoke about Christ, this coming Messiah, bearing our griefs, that he was a man who was stricken. He was not esteemed. He was despised. He was shamed. He would bear all of the sin and the guilt of of his people. But in the end, if he goes willingly as that sacrifice, he's going to be exalted. He's going to receive the spoils. He's going to share in all that. It's going to be given to him. So when you're looking at the life of Christ, it was marked with, with um, shame and humility and, and, and uh, opposition and, and physical beatings and verbal attacks and assaults on his character and calling him a demon and, and working under the authority of Satan and betrayal by his own, you know, rejection by his, his people in his own town and by his family members. And, and even on the cross, they're mocking him, hurling insults at him. But after his earthly ministry is complete, what do we see? We see here that Peter says that that Christ, meaning after the resurrection, after his ascension, he is at the right hand of God having gone into into heaven. That's a reference to his ascension that we read about in Acts chapter 1. After angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So here we see that, that Jesus, in a sense, finally has his proper honor and the worship and the glory that is due to him now we know from passages like philippians chapter 2 that he willingly came down to earth take a look at philippians chapter 2 and let's look at uh, verses uh, 5 through 11 quickly philippians 2 beginning in verse 5 have this attitude in yourselves which was also in christ jesus who although he existed in the form of god did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here we see the humility of Christ in his incarnation, and we we see the the emptying of Christ as he's laying aside his divine prerogatives. He's not not, uh, emptying himself of his attributes, but he's choosing not to use them in order to accomplish the plan of salvation. But then it's all restored. Everything comes back to him and more, we might say, where God is, is pouring out upon him all of these rewards and giving him the right to judge everyone and everything. And we see that in, in Revelation at the great white throne judgment. It's, it's possible that Peter had Psalm 110 in mind. Take a look at Psalm 110. And we see here this, this um, messianic psalm speaking of this coming Savior and how God would exalt him. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Again, there we see the Old Testament, the type with Melchizedek. Christ is this uh, priest in the order of Melchizedek, meaning the Bible tells us he had no beginning and no end. Melchizedek was this very mysterious man. There he was, and then he's gone. We don't know who his parents were, and you see there the the, uh, connection with Christ having no earthly parents, uh, Mary and Joseph, but this, this miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit, so having no literal physical parents. And anyhow, there's a lot to be said there with Melchizedek. But we see here, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, and he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so as we look here, we see the Lord giving dominion to his coming king, to his coming Messiah. And so we see that about Jesus Christ, and that's why we look at this and say this is a a messianic psalm. And so it's quite possible that Peter had this in mind when he's talking about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. And to be seated at the right hand of the Father, it says here in this uh, quote box from Wayne Grudem, in the ancient world, to sit at the right hand of a king signified that one acted with the king's authority and power. Moreover, Christ's ascension foreshadows our future ascension and rule with him. So where here on earth he was once mocked and despised and ridiculed, had no authority in the eyes of the world, he's seated at the right hand of the Father in this wonderful majesty and glory and honor. And there he is in that position of privilege and and power and majesty and authority and prominence and honor. And we understand that we are also uh, going to be, in a sense, recipients of that. With our our last few minutes here, take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. We'll start in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then going on in chapter 5 gives another great a contrast between the temporal and the eternal. And so Paul is saying this, that, that we are here on earth and we're going through this process of decay. We are dying here every day, but it, we understand that our sights are set on glory, that there's much more in store for us. It's the weight of eternal glory. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. 1 Peter 5, 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter says, you're going through suffering and your suffering is temporary. But understand this, God is calling you to eternal glory through Christ. And he will perfect you, he will confirm you, he will establish you, he will strengthen you. So glorify God. And and so when you look at this, going back to 1 Peter 3.22, Christ has gone into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God, and all of these angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Well, let me just say this with the last minute or so that we have. Uh, Who were these angels and powers and authorities? There's two main views. One is that it's talking about all the spirit beings. 
And we can say with certainty that those angels who are not rebellious certainly are under the authority of Christ. They are subject to him. But in the context of 1 Peter, especially looking at passages where we just learned about the, the spirits in prison who were disobedient, and then we look at Jude and we look at 2 Peter, we look at Genesis and see these angels who left their proper abode, I think that maybe if we look at, at that context, there's a little more evidence that these angels are talking about the fallen angels and the authorities and powers, that all those wicked spiritual forces have been subjected to Christ and not a, a statement of all of the spirit beings, good and bad. But it's not untrue because all angels who have not rebelled are under the authority of Christ. And so either view is a valid, solid biblical view. But I think in the context, this is probably speaking more to these uh, fallen angels or demons that we've read about in 1 Peter. Uh, and then knowing, one last uh, passage here about that. Look at Ephesians 6.12. When we talk about putting on the armor of God, we put on the full armor of God. Why? Because in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there we see some of these same terms, these spiritual entities where we are constantly engaged in spiritual warfare. So I do think that, that there's evidence to tip the scales to think these are the, the fallen angels that have been subjected to Christ. And then we see here Christ has all authority over them. And just one last verse. Look at Matthew 28 as we end here. I think that this understanding in 1 Peter that everything has been subjected to Christ prior to his ascension. Now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And then it kind of gives us a better, um, maybe clearer understanding of what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. It's like everything is subjected to me. Therefore, you go out and you make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As he commissions his disciples to go out, he's saying everything and everyone has been subjected to me. And as you go out into this world to proclaim the gospel, not even the, the forces of Satan can stand against you because they all are subjected to me. That ends chapter 3 of uh, 1 Peter. Next time we're in 1 Peter, we'll begin chapter 4. Uh, and so let me close in a word of prayer, and then we will be dismissed. A little break before our morning service. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this opportunity to spend time in your word and to uh, be given these wonderful reminders and these words of encouragement that we serve a risen Savior. We serve Jesus who is victorious and that in him we have victory as well. I pray that we are always uh, having the right uh, mindset. Uh, we understand that when we are, are persecuted, we are ridiculed, we are, are mocked or, or suffering or struggling, whatever it is, as we are striving to live for your glory, that we always remember there is a great purpose uh, in it. And in the end, as we come through it, you will be glorified and we will be stronger for it. And in the end, you have the rewards stored up in heaven for us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name.